Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today we have an interview with Ben Claremont. He first time guest, uh, and this one was fun. We talked about EW Scripts, which is a company most people probably haven't heard of, but he knows the business extensively. He knows it really, really well, um, and he works for Cove Street Capital. We get into all that. Uh, any highlights from the interview? Yeah, his analysis of what the assets were, what they do, how they actually make money, what are the risks for you know declining sales and profits, what are the opportunities to growing sales and profits you kind of look at them and you know you think all right broadcast television is one of the big assets and you're like uh you know what's the durability of that everyone thinks in the immediately in their head oh this is a dying business uh but he kind of goes through you know why it is perceived as a dying business why it might not actually be as dying, you know, as a dying business as it is but also some of the risks as well so that was great that was my favorite part yeah and if you can get a business where everyone tends to think it's dying and it's not that can lead to pretty good returns. So I think this is definitely worth listening to. Before we get to the interview, though, we want to talk about our friends quarter. Uh, we have now passed earnings season, I think, but I used it almost religiously this quarter. And uh, it's, I mean, it's the easiest way to listen to tra- or listen to conference calls. It's, they're all there. Uh, you can also read the transcripts. Uh, they have investor presentations as well. You can add emojis along the uh, conference call if you want. So if there's something notable that you want to remember, you can just add an emoji, fire emoji whenever there's something exciting said. Um, and so it, it's just a fun way to listen to conference calls. And it's much easier than just trying to pull it up on your computer and listen. It's just a really intuitive solution. Um, and so, yeah, you can go ahead, download it. It's quarter, Q-U-A-R-T-R. No it is, e. What is it though? You have to say. I just described it. I know, but what, where can people get it? Oh, it's an app. Uh, it's uh, it's on Android. It's on iOS. Um, yeah, go ahead, download it, quarter. Uh, you can also follow them on Twitter at quarter underscore app. Remember, it's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E. Go ahead, check them out. Without further ado. Oh, Set oh. investing promo, special special promotion. That's Remember, right. $50 off through the end of the year, code chitchat, limited time offer. So if you're looking to get into seven investing, get into the research service, check it out. Limited time, $50 yeah. off the annual subscription. If this is the perfect time to start it off, little holiday gift for yourself or someone else, Here's the we're going to give you a discount. If you're going to subscribe anyways next year, go ahead, use that annual. Now, $50 off with Chit Chat, save some money. You're welcome. That's our gift to you. Now, without further ado, let's get to the interview. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right. Today, we are welcomed by Ben Claremont. He's a principal and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. We got connected through Louise Sanchez, who has been on the show before. Um, and so why don't, why don't you give us kind of your background? This is your first time on our show. So how'd you get into finance to begin with? And then how'd you end up at Cove Street? Sure. Thanks. First of all, thanks so much for having me. 
so I actually went to undergraduate business school. Um, so I was exposed to, to finance pretty early on in my life, but wasn't particularly focused on my finance and accounting courses because my family's in commercial real estate. And so uh, real estate was the path for me. So basically I was myopically focused on graduating and, and you know, focusing on real estate and so that I could um, you know, start my career in the family business. Uh, that worked pretty well for about five years. Um, and, you know, at that point I started to look around and I think I was thinking about what else I could do. And and just because of the, the family situation wasn't quite as rewarding as I hoped it would be. Um, and uh, a friend of mine who worked for a hedge fund who I was living with handed me a copy of uh, Ben Graham's book, The Intelligent Investor. And yeah, it's it's totally a cliche. There are plenty of people whose lives have been changed by that book, but it, it's true in my case. I read that book and I said, this is this is what I want to do professionally. I, I love the idea of analyzing companies and businesses and and the intellectual uh, stimulation of trying to, you know, trying to outsmart a very, very, um, you know, in general, I guess, a, a very efficient market. Um, and uh, so. I, I, I was trying to figure out how to sneak my way onto the buy side without any experience. And I was really lucky to be able to get my um, first job on the buy side uh, in 2007. Timing wasn't great, but you know, as, as you guys may know, getting that first job is, is, is just like a, a really tough thing to do. And it's, it's great when it happens. And so, um, you know, started with a long short fund in, um, in 2007. The, the market obviously started to rupture around that period of time. So it was a very difficult time to raise money as a new hedge fund. Um, you know, and so it was a trial by fire. I, I mean, I was busy shorting financials in, 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 in 2009 and eight, which was an interesting start to my career. Um, and so what ended up happening is that fund wound down and it really wasn't because of performance. We actually did really well, um, you know, when the market was down a lot, but it just like, it was mostly the founder's money anyway. And he didn't like having outside clients is annoying. And so he was like, why am I doing this? And so at that point I started to figure, to, to think like, okay, well, maybe if I had more of a background in, 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 in finance and accounting, it would help my, um, my candidacy for my next role. So um, I went to business school at UCLA. And so that's how I wound up at, at, UCLA Anderson. Oh, so that's, how, so sorry, that's how I wound up in LA. Um, and uh, the story of how I got to Co Street is one that I tell, and it's and I always you know caution people that it's a very difficult story to replicate, but there are lessons that can be learned from it. So in um, in 2009, I went to my first Berkshire meeting, um, and I um, I made the crazy decision to try to take down every word that that Buffett and Munger said. Um, and if anyone's been to a Berkshire meeting, uh, you'll, you would recognize that's a very painful endeavor because it's five or six hours of, of, of Buffett and Munger talking. And these were, this was before live stream, this was before transcripts were available. Like to know what Buffett and Munger said, you kind of had to be there or you needed good notes. Um, and so I took notes from 2009 to 2011 and posted them on my blog. Um, and I guess I became known, the blog was called the, the Inoculated Investor, by the way. Um, I guess I've been, got known as like the guy who went to Berkshire to take notes. Um, and so when I was looking for a job, um, a guy who I didn't even know recommended me to my boss, um, my current, the, the current, my current boss and founder of Co Street, um, said, I, I don't know who this guy is, but anyone who will sit there for, for take and take notes for six hours, you have to meet him. Um, and so Jeff was kind of spinning off from his old firm and starting Co Street. And the rest is history. Uh, I've been here 10 years. I'm a partner and I'm also the portfolio manager on our SMIT cap strategy.
Nice. That, that is that is funny. That's a lot of note taking. Um, but today we are talking about a company called EW Scripts. This is our first time discovering the business, so this is a totally new name to us. Um, so can you kind of explain what the business model is and then how it's evolved in recent years? Give some of the history. Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. So let, let me just give some stats first. The the market cap's about one point six billion, um, and the enterprise value is about five point four billion. Um, which will suggest to you that there's some debt on the business, and and we'll talk a little bit about that. So Scripps was a business that actually started a hundred and almost 140 years ago, I think, um, uh, and it started in the local newspaper business. And it's a funny story actually of how the business was founded. Um, Edward Scripps. Um, thought there was room for a second newspaper in Cleveland, like the, the main newspaper back in the uh, in that period of time, um, only catered to rich people. Um, and he thought that there was room for a, a paper that didn't cater to rich people. So he started what was called the penny press and he charged a penny for it. Um, and so the, the business started, uh, the company started in the newspaper business. Um, in 2015, Scripps actually um, merged the newspaper business with Journal Communications. And so they haven't been in the newspaper business since um, 2015, uh, but that was the origin. Um, and so the company you know, has a history of building and selling businesses. So in 1994, the company started um, in building cable news networks. So you may know Home and Garden TV, HDTV, and the Food Network which was launched in 1997. Um, so like, so as part of EW scripts, they were, they were, they were funded and they were built and then they were eventually spun off um, in 2008. And eventually that business was um, acquired by discovery uh, for about for almost $15 billion in 2000. Um, in uh, I think that was what year was that? Uh, two, uh, I forget what year that was in, 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 in recent years, I think it was 2017 that that business was bought. Um, so, as I said, this company has a long history of building businesses and monetizing them. And, you know, what, what that means is that the business overall has evolved a lot, right? We started in newspapers, got into cable networks. So, what, what is the business now? So, you, you, right now, you have two segments. One is a local media segment. And what that is, is um, 61 local broadcast stations across the U.S. So, think about the local ABC, NBC, Fox, um, CBS affiliates. In, in a certain market. So, you know, they own the ABC affiliate in Phoenix, for example. So um, when you turn on the six o'clock news, um, you know, on, on, C on ABC in Phoenix, like you're going to see a script station. Um, and as of right now, ABC and CW is another one of their large, large partners um, on, the, on the broadcast side. Um, and NBC are the three largest partners. Uh, the top five markets are Phoenix, Tampa, Detroit, Denver, and Miami. So Pretty solid MSAs, but we're not talking New York and LA. Um, so, how does this segment make money? So, really, it, th th there's there's three ways it makes money, um, and and really the, the 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 way you think of broadcast television mainly it, or typically is that they're selling advertisers to local business advertisements to local businesses. So, local auto dealers, for example. So, so the, the local Chevy dealer will will you know, on, on the on the five o'clock news will have an ad. Um, and and they they will they have certain slots that they can sell ads, and then there's certain slots that NBC or their partner can sell ads. Um, and so during news time, that is when they sell a lot of their ads. It's the most highly valued time. Um, so think of you know just any local business that you know that would advertise on the five o'clock news. That's that's where that's where the core ads come from. Um, the the part of the business that has really evolved over the last decade. Is what's what what we call retransmission revenues. 
So it used to be that if you subscribe to the cable bundle, um, given that the stations, the broadcast stations were available over the air, which means that you could put up a digital antenna and get the stations for free, because of that, um, Charter, for example, didn't pay very much or anything for the local affiliates to be in the cable bundle. And so they didn't get any revenue. They made their money through ads. They didn't get any subscription revenue. Um, and that changed, I would say, about 10 years ago. Um, and now that's become a much larger part of their business. So if I'm Charter or Comcast, I pay scripts um, a per sub per month on a per sub per month basis for um, you know the uh, for a subscriber in a certain area. So if 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 you're in Phoenix and you're you're using Comcast, right? Like any the the, the subs that are on Charter or sorry on, on Comcast will um will so the Charter sorry Comcast will pay uh, scripts in or, for those subs um, to appear in the cable bundle. And so what's happened over time is that the number of subs has been declining. But pricing has gone way up because if you think about broadcast, broadcast stations, ABC, NBC, Fox, and, and, and CBS specifically get a lot of viewership. Part of that's the NFL. Obviously, sports and NFL are, have huge viewership, but also all of the scripted shows and comedies that people watch. There's a lot of viewership. And relative to you know, the viewership that, that, the, subs, that the, the affiliates generate um, and, and the networks generate, there was, they weren't getting paid very much. So what's happened is they've gotten paid more and more over time because they generate so many viewers. Um, and so, you know, that segment, the, the retrans part of, of, of the local media business is now 50%. So it's gone basically from zero to 50% of the revenue and that's contractual revenue. Now the sub base has been declining, but that's still a much more like a subscription business than I just sell ads. And if the economy sucks, then I can't sell more ads. Um, and the other kind of wacky thing about <laughs> uh, this business is, is in the local media segment, they sell a lot of political ads. So on, on two-year two periods, um, in, in presidential years and the non-presidential years, they get huge windfalls. Um, so especially when there's a presidential election, they bring in a lot of money and it comes in at high margins. But even in off years, when there's just gubernatorial and congressional and senatorial races, um, they generate a lot of ad spending. Um, and as you can imagine, given the environment in the world today, 22 and 24 are setting up to be really big years for scripts. Um, you know, if you think about why, you know, the Democrats margins in the House and the Senate are really small um, and then the country is really divided. So there's just a ton of money flowing into political. And so if you want a reference, um, they did in 2020, which was a big, big year for spending, they did $267 million in political revenue. And that basically that all drops off the next year. Like, I think they're going to do maybe 20 million this year. Um, and But then in 2022, it ramps back up. Um, and they actually discussed on a recent call that they think that 2022 could be even bigger than 2020, which is crazy. But really, just given how you know, divided we all are and how big, you know, how big the gains could be from winning a couple House seats or a Senate seat, you know, people are going to pour a lot of money in there. Um, and so in 2016, there was this idea that political ad spending on local broadcast TV was done. Trump basically had used Facebook and Twitter and, you know, Fox News to get all this publicity. He didn't run a traditional campaign where because he didn't have the money. 
He didn't run a trend, trend, uh, traditional campaign where he he advertised on local broadcast. And so everyone said, okay, that this this gravy train is dead. Um, and clearly, if you look at 2020, which was by far the largest year we'd ever seen, you know, it just it hasn't played out that way. Um, and it's because the politicians and the super PACs believe that local t- TV is the best way to reach viewers and and, and voters. Um, and and the truth is. Facebook and YouTube have become less ability to sell political ads. Just think of anything that's happened, whether it's the Russian influence on the 2016 election or misinformation, right? They've just been, they've been hampered. And a lot of that money has flowed back into the, um, into the, uh, the, the, the broadcast world. So that was a lot. Let me pause there and see if you have any questions about the local media segment. Local media, no. Um, I'm curious. I know that I know that there's another segment, but they they used to have audio, right? And that's been sold off. Yes. So um, as I said, this company kind of has a history of value investing. I would say, you know, most companies don't make kind of financial transactions that you know, like a build to sell. We'll we'll buy it, we'll build it, and we'll sell it. Like most companies buy things and they think that they're going to own it forever. Right. And so what they did, um, what Scripps did is it, they they bought um, a company called Triton, Triton Digital um, a few years ago um, and for one hundred fifty million dollars. Um, they built it up for a few years and then they sold it to iHeart uh, for two hundred thirty million in um, earlier this year. Um, and they also were very early in the podcasting space. And so um, in the kind of like. 2016, 2017 timeframe, they bought um, Stitcher and they bought Midroll, which are two podcast platforms. Um, and they, they spent about $60 million acquiring those two assets. They spent a lot of money um, investing in them so they could grow. And then they recently sold that business to uh, Sirius Satellite Radio or, um, or Sirius XM for $325 million. Awesome. So they really nice return on their investment. And so, you know, um, Maybe we didn't really talk about this, but I actually have a podcast myself called Compounders, where I interview public company CEOs. And when I interviewed Scripps CEO Adam Simpson, you know, you know, I asked him like, well, what is what is the ethos of this company that allows you to kind of like build something and monetize it versus holding on to it? And he described himself as a portfolio manager. Right? He doesn't, you know, these assets, he doesn't look at, at any asset within the company as a forever asset. And you could see from the number of divestitures they've done and the, in the, in the spin of the broadcast um, of the cable business that they did with, with Scripps Network Interactive, that this company just has a history of doing these kind of things. Um, so they are completely out of the audio business after a really nice return. Um, and, you know, I think it just speaks to, the way that they look at themselves as portfolio managers, as opposed to someone who is a, a kind of a never sell bro. All right. And back to the uh, broadcast television stuff. So subscribers are declining, right? That's what something everyone knows. I guess that's the big worry for something like this, right? Uh, but advertising revenue seems to be pretty stable or growing. I don't know if you can give any numbers on that, uh, if you have them handy, but is that just because people are really valuing, say, like a dollar per ad type deal. Are those rates just going up and up and up? And how sustainable do you think that is? So let me see how I can answer that. So some of the things, so it's just really a wacky company to try to uh, to do analysis for, because if you're looking at a year over year basis, th- there's a crowding out effect that happens. 
So if I, there's only so much airtime, right? And so I can't have an, an, uh, a car dealer ad simultaneously showing with a political ad. And so during political years, there's a crowd out effect where the political ads take over the local, the, you know, the local car dealer or the local travel agent is not, they're not showing those ads. And so, um, you know, you'll see weird things happen on a year over year basis. Plus, you know, last year was impacted by COVID. So let me let me just take a step back and say, what do I think about core ads, you know, outside of political, just in general? I think it's a low growth business. Um, I don't think they're getting much better CPMs, you know, or rates uh, on those ads. Um, I think, you know, news, which is kind of their driver, saw a little bit of a resurgence during COVID. Part of it is because people didn't have anything else to do. And part of it just because like there was a lot of news to consume. And so, um, you know, we, we see local newscasts getting better ratings than they used to, but I'm not sure that's a forever thing. So I, I think of the core ad side of, of any broadcast network as a low growth one to 2% kind of thing. And, you know, so is that some of that pricing, some of that volume? Um, but I don't, you know, getting to the point, like, this this industry has been quote unquote dead so many times over the last 20 years right and it just hasn't been killed um and part of it is because of the investments that the networks make in content think about how much money cbs and um nbc and fox put into football and how much they spend on these scripted shows and so the truth of the matter is um people watch these shows i think i don't the data is not up to date, I think, but I think it was in 2019, 23 out of 25 most top viewed events in 2019 were on broadcast, right? And so it's just been a model that has been very difficult to kill. I don't think it's a huge growth model, but I, I think, you know, in terms of like price versus volume the, the, and, and going forward, I think you could see low growth. Okay. And back to more of the political advertising stuff, who, so if YouTube uh, and Facebook are kind of hamstrung uh, in their ability to do kind of this stuff. Um, and they're not really willing because, you know, they already have so many other advertisements and maybe it's not worth the risk to do all this political stuff or embrace it as much anymore. Who are their main competitors for the political, for political ad spending? You know, broadcast, I mean, of course you can, there, so for cable, so I guess I would, I would bifurcate TV between cable and broadcast. So right. for sure, the cable networks as well can sell political ads. Um, uh, it hasn't been, you know, they don't necessarily have as much, unless you're like ESPN, you know, if you're a tertiary or secondary cable network, you don't have quite as much um, reach. So I, I think on a per you know, eyeball basis, you get much more reach with broadcast. Um, you know, there are other digital means for, for reaching people outside of face, Facebook and, and, and YouTube, for example, but really you know, it just, it hasn't, and, and, and look, look, think about it. Radio has been in decline. Who, newspapers have been in decline. Um, you know, over the top. I mean, is that possible? Like, are you going to, if you subscribe to Peacock, for example, um, and you, the, not the not the pay version, but the, the version that where you get ads, are you going to see political ads? Yeah, for sure. It just, in terms of the reach, in terms of getting to vote, like getting the most potential voters per 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 advertiser for advertisement i should say there's just no competition for broadcast right now and and for sure i i look at digital as a threat it is a continuous threat 
Um, and so maybe the pendulum, you know, swung too far towards digital and now it's swung too far back towards broadcast and maybe it settles out somewhere in the middle. But I just see, especially in the current political environment, that it is very unlikely that anyone's going to unseat them anytime soon. Okay. And do they own any other assets right now or is it just this stuff? So that's, so getting to this company and their ability and willingness to evolve and pivot um, I'll go into the second segment because then it'll it'll answer your question. So so as I mentioned, the, the main set that there's a the local media segment and then there's the national network segment. And this business includes Newsy, um, Ion, and Cates. And I'll just go quickly through those. So Newsy is um, SSP's or Scripps's national news network um, that was um, that is now available over the top. Um, so it's always sorry, it's always been available over the top. They are now taking it over the air. So now you, if you plug in a digital antenna in, in, in where you guys are, there's a chance that you're going to be able to get Newsy as, as one of the stations for free. Um, and so it's a business they've been building. They're not really trying to compete with, with you know, kind of sensational news, right? CN, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News. I mean, it's more, it's more based on this company has a history of journalism, and they think there is, a, there is room for a platform of like legitimate journalism um, in, in, in news as opposed to entertainment. So that's something that they've been building. This is probably an asset that they're building to sell. I, I mean, it, it just, it just seems like something that may be non-core, but that's part of the national networks. But the two real things I want to highlight about the national networks, um, um, segment, or it's, I think it's, sorry, it's, it's not called, it's, sorry, it's not called scripts networks. They just changed the name. Um, so they bought a company called Kate's um in 2017 for 300 million and before they made that deal we were shareholders then i'd never heard of what was called a diginet but apparently let's just say you have a a, a station like scripts's abc affiliate in phoenix that station will have excess spectrum that can be used to have substations under it and so really what the, the the genius of Cates, who was a founder, he recognized that there was an opportunity to basically lease spectrum that was being unused and create substations underneath it that they could that could be shown over the air and could generate ad revenue. And so Scripps leased that spectrum and started a few over the chair uh, over the air channels: bounce, grit, and laugh, which you guys have maybe never heard of but they're available over the air and they generate ad revenue. Um, and it's, it was kind of an interesting sneaky move where there was a bunch of unused spectrum and the people who were holding it didn't know how to monetize it. So if someone came in and said, hey, I'll give you a dollar for it, it was better than not using it. And so that was how you know, Kate's got started. And so, so they bought that company um, and, then, and then that paved the way for the ION deal, which happened last year. So in in the the midst in the midst of the of the COVID crisis in 2020, um, Scripps levered up to pay almost 2.7 billion dollars for Ion. And so, what is Ion? Ion is another over the air um, and cable station that's available in 62 markets and it reaches about 96 percent of homes. Um, it actually has the fifth largest average primetime audience among all cable carried networks. And so. For, there are a lot of people who are watching over the air now, and Ion gets a lot of viewers. And so it generates revenue 
um, by selling advertising into the national marketplace. And so it, if you guys know anything about advertising, ION will participate in the upfronts. They're not just, you know, it's not just, um, it's not just scatter and it's not just direct response ads. Um, and so the sneaky thing about this deal is that ION had a ton of spectrum that was not being used or could be repurposed. And so remember what I said about Kate's. Kate's was essentially leasing spectrum from other station owners, like so non-script station owners like Tegna or Gray. And Ion had a bunch of unused spectrum that when you merge scripts and Ion, they, scripts has the ability to move um, the Kate's networks from the spectrum they were leasing to Ion spectrum, which means that they don't have to pay for it. And so that is a huge, huge savings. And what it's led to is it leads to that segment, the, the Scripps Network segment, generating 40% operating margins. Um, and some of that is from the synergies that come from that deal. But that 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 has been, you know, in, you asked how the business has evolved and what assets do they own and what might be underappreciated about this company is that they have a 40% operating margin growing business that is exposed to over-the-air viewership, which is growing rapidly because the cable bundle has gotten so expensive. So in a way... The company has looked at the, the headwinds that you see in cable subs and, you know, the pressure on, on um, you know, just the, the pricing pressure that consumers are feeling um, because as Internet and the cable bundle gets so expensive and they've pivoted over the air. And now they have a huge share of total over the air viewership. Um, and that's why, you know, they've been growing so fast. How big is over the air? Like, do you have any numbers on that? I don't have the numbers on the top of my head, um, but the, there are millions and millions of people who are subscribing uh, over the air. I mean, the, you can get numbers and I don't have them off the top, of my, uh, the top of my head either on like the number of cable subscribers out there, but it's been dwindling um, and it's and it's it's been a threat to their core business, to that core ad business where they make money uh, and, and on the retrans business as well, which has been such a gravy train. And I think they, with Kate's, they pivoted way earlier than other people did and realized that the over the air network was going to be an out uh, over the air viewership was an outlet for people who just didn't want to pay $150 a month for the cable bundle. Okay. I think that covers the business model pretty thoroughly. We've got a whole bunch of more questions, uh, but before we get to that, we're going to take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by direct TV stream. DirecTV Stream brings you the live TV you love. That means you can stay up to the minute on 24-hour live news, from entertainment to current events, wherever you are in the U.S., whether that's at home, on your TV, or streaming on the go. And you get your favorite live sports, so you can catch this season's biggest games. Get the best of live TV with DirecTV Stream. Get your TV together at DirecTV.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are, miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast. Or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. Okay, welcome back in. The first question that I have on the top of my mind... Um, and I think this is probably what a lot of listeners are thinking about is as cutting the cord continues, how is Scripps positioned? How do they uh, move into that, I guess, new wave of consuming media? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think we talked about the importance of Ion and the pivot that they made in, in buying Kate's and Ion. So let's, let's be honest, like, you know, I, I think I'm a very practical person as an investor and I worry about a lot of things that may not go wrong and, but, 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 but I, you know, but they, they consume me. And in this case, yeah, I am absolutely worried about two things as it relates to their, the, the traditional broadcast business. You have the um, people continue to cut the cord. Now it has, the pace of decline has decelerated, but you know, COVID throws a lot of curveballs into that. So it's really hard to know what the pace of decline is going to be going forward. But I, I would assume that they're going to have a, a, a headwind in terms of the number of viewers who are accessing broadcast over the, the, through the cable bundle pretty consistently going forward. Uh, and the other issue that comes with is that, as I mentioned, on, on the retransmission revenue, they get paid on a per sub per month basis. So if subs are going down 5%, you're not, you know, that, that's that's 5% dro- potential drop in revenue unless you have pricing power. And so here's here's the rub here is that how many businesses have you ever seen with declining viewership and, and or, or membership and, and the ability to raise prices? Probably really few. And so the issue has been, as I mentioned, that broadcast relative to its viewership was undercompensated by the by car, by the charters and Comcast of the world. And but but that floor has 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 risen a lot. And now they are closer to being fully compensated for their viewership. And there are, um, and if you read the news, I mean, right now, Tegna and Dish are in a dispute and Tegna's stations are not available on Dish right now because Tegna and the other broadcasters have been pushing for higher pricing per sub per month. And the people like Dish and DirecTV specifically who have really fast declining businesses have been pushing back. And so I worry to some degree that they're the gravy train associated with retrans that has you know seen higher pricing, but lower viewership it, um, is going to stop. And that every new negotiation that happens every three years is not going to lead to higher pricing. So I look at the pivot to ION and Kate's and over the air as a almost like a hedge, but also an opportunity to continue to grow with the over the air market because every all those negatives that I mentioned for the local media business are positives for over the air. So you know in, in some ways Scripps is going to have a higher margin business growing at you know low sing, you know got, well n- low double digits next year but you know maybe even high single digits going forward that can offset any declines in the um or, or more than offset any declines that they're seeing in local media so um I, I think they're pretty well positioned but I am very cognizant of the risk of of what of what the you know what the cable bundle looks like in five years what is what what does news viewership look like in terms of are millennials and gen z's going to watch news or is that only boomers and gen xers so i I do think there are some headwinds and and the company would disagree with these but i think there are some headwinds in local media that can be more than offset with what they're doing in in the um the scripts networks business okay that's a great overview of that um before we get to more of the financials uh, you know, the debt loan stuff. What are your thoughts on the management team? You talked about it a tiny bit. I know you've interviewed them. Uh, you know, what do you like? And I don't know if you have to say dislike anything, but what, what are your thoughts on them in general? So this is actually a funny story. Um, and so um, 
we were, you know, we were shareholders when Adam Simpson became CEO. And I would say we were not sure about the transition there when he first came in. In fact, our founder, um, you know, basically said that that he was constipated um, at first. And I think we actually sent him a, um, a gift package that had some like X-Lax or something in it. And, and the implication was that like, you know, we didn't think Adam was capable of like pivoting or making big, bold moves. And I will say we have been totally, totally wrong about that. The script says <laughs> they've done a lot of MA, they've done a number of pivots, they've done a number of divestitures, they've done a lot to diversify the business. Um, you know, if, if you know, I'll just give myself a, a plug here. Like, I think the Adam Simpson interview on Compounders was one of the best of the of the entire season. So, if you're interested in learning more about this business, I would just highly recommend um, you know listening to to the my interview with Adam. But you know, I think this company has shown the ability to be very entrepreneurial and to be able to evolve with the times. Like I said. This is a business that started in newspapers. They saw the decline in newspapers and they sold it. Like they were in radio at some point and they got out of the radio business. They were in the cable networks business and they sold, they, they spun that off. And so, you know, I just think they have, and Adam embodies this in a lot of ways. They have the mentality of value investors and um, portfolio managers. And, but also, you know, try to have, and, and Adam talks about this in the podcast, like have a culture of entrepreneurialism. So, you know, I will say that, you know, he's, they've taken on a fair amount of leverage to make all this happen. Um, and so that's always a concern for me. But honestly, the company's executed really well, whether it's the, the, the overall strategy, the synergy capture, and the debt pay down, you know, they've been really impressive. So I, I think Adam has a good capital allocation brain. Um, you know, I, I think he's willing to sell something if someone else highly values it more highly. But he also has this knack for looking for underappreciated assets. And I would argue that the mid-roll and stitcher fit that and Kate's and Ion, you know, as as in, in a way, you know, Scripps was the after the Kate's acquisition was just a perfect buyer of Ion. And no one could have extracted the synergies that they're going to be able to extract it. All right. Um, I mean, that that pretty much covers, I guess, the business. So we want to talk a little bit about the financials um, and something that they did. That was interesting during COVID was that ion acquisition, which you talked about. Uh, and that required some leverage. So what do you think was their rationale for that? And then what did that take? Because another question we have is about the Berkshire preferred yeah. share. So can you kind of warp that in there as well? So as you can imagine, conservative value investors watching one of their companies lever up to do a deal in 2020 was a little nerve-wracking. And I don't think the market understood it because you know, ion. Ion, I think, was an overlevered kind of, you know, orphaned asset that no one really knew what to do with, um, and it was the insight that they that I mentioned that they could move all of the Kate's networks that were leasing spectrum from other people onto the Ion spectrum, which was really a, a stroke of brilliance in a lot of ways, and so that's how you get to five hundred million dollars in synergies on a two point six five billion dollar deal. And you know, five hundred eighty-seven million dollars in in ion revenue. So if you just think about those numbers, you're approaching ten percent of sales of synergies uh, synergies over sales of ten percent. That's as high a number as I've ever seen. So so basically, as I said, 
Kate's was actually Kate's because of the Kate's assets, Scripps was the best owner for Ion and no one else had that synergy opportunity. And so as I'm thinking about this deal and why they did it and the risk associated with it, a lot of the deal gets de-risks just because this is a mechanical thing. A lease is up with uh, well, you know, their leasing spectrum for the next year with Tegna, um, who's another broadcast company, that lease rolls off. And then they they and then they have they don't have to pay any more rent for that for that spectrum because they can move it onto the ion spectrum. So as opposed to like very difficult merger synergies where you know you have to like consolidate plants or you have to mix cultures or you know the, you know some hypothetical revenue synergies. This is just a mechanistic thing, and so I think that's um I think that was one of the main reasons why we got comfortable with it. The other thing is the ion deal gives them a lot of scale. And so if you think of advertising or in any content right now, content production or, or distribution, scale is really important. And so before they had Ion, Kate's was kind of a, um, you know, a little bit of a backwater when it came to like people who are advertising on bounce and laugh. So they actually have a lot of direct response ads. If you go, I don't know if you remember what those are, but like, you know, like this is a 20 minute infomercial on right. whatever the right, ice cream right. or something like that. Like they had a lot of those kind of ads. Um, but the, when you add ion to the mix, the scripts can put all of the national networks together, newsy um, uh, ion and Kate's and take them to the upfronts. And so when you go to the upfronts, you can just get much higher rates because you have just a lot more. It's just you're participating in a, in a in a much more competitive market where there are large advertisers putting money to work. So I think I think an upside opportunity with Ion is that um, script that scale is going to lead to higher CPMs for the entire Scripps Networks business. Um, and I think you know what, what else got us comfortable. With, with the deal is that like, you know, Scripps is just constantly zigging while others are zagging. Um, and, 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 you know, they've, they've moved from having a very small share in broadcast television to having a very, very large share in, in OTA. And, and I think that is a, that's a growing business. And I think there's, in, you know, there's plenty of logic for a consumer who doesn't want to pay $150 a month and can, you know, cut the cord, pay for internet, subscribe to, to Disney plus, or, and Netflix, and then and then consume you know a lot of stations over the air. So I think there's just you know it was a nice strategic move, and you know so so getting to the question about Berkshire, look, I always like to have Uncle Warren and Ted Weschler as partners in any in any deal, but let's be honest, right? Berkshire got a pretty big deal, you know, a pretty good deal here, right? So. For, there was so the piece the, the the financing was a six hundred million dollar piece of preferred stock with an eight percent dividend and so I don't know where else you're getting eight percent dividend so that's that you know it's on a preferred stock so that's that's probably a pretty good position they also got twenty three million dollars sorry sorry twenty three million warrants struck at thirteen dollars and the stock's almost twenty today so that's it's been a good financial investment for Berkshire but. I think to some extent, it, the fact that Berkshire was willing to underwrite this deal validates the staying power of the local broadcast model. Um, and I think actually, you guys might not know this, but Berkshire, I think, still owns a local TV station itself. There was a complicated transaction where they acquired a local TV station from from Graham Holdings uh, in a in a in a I think it was an asset swap. Um, so 
Look, I, I don't know. I don't think Buffett and, and Wessler wake up every day thinking that that broadcast television is, is going to be the next Amazon. Um, but I do think that to some extent, having them as partners and, and, and their involvement here is validation that this was a pretty sound deal. Um, and there was a lot of industrial logic behind it. And if I'm not mistaken, they aren't allowed to uh, repurchase any shares until that preferred is paid off. Am I getting that right? I think that's right. Okay. Okay. And uh, and look, they're not in any position to repurchase shares, right? They're they're just getting the leverage question. I mean, they're on a on a on a trailing basis. They're four point seven times levered, um, which you know, as a conservative value investor, is is a little concerning to me. Now, the cash flow profile business, because with the addition of Ion, has completely changed. So I think they have the ability to pay it down, and we can talk more about that. But I don't. You know, they should be focused on paying down debt and not not buying back stock, even if, even though I do think it is, is really undervalued. I don't think they have a lever to, 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 to change that aside from just good execution. Right. Let's get to that. Yeah. Let's get to the debt more in detail. Um, they have, I guess you can give the exact number, maybe of the amount of long-term debt. What do you think the path is to managing that or paying it off um, or, you know, part of paying part of it off or refinancing it, whatever, how much cash flow are they generating and how, you know, what kind of growth could you expect in the cash flow to help pay that off? Can I kind of give some context around that? Yeah. So, you know, they have over 3 billion in long-term debt um, on the balance sheet. And so it's, it's, it's a big number. Um, so, but let's, let's talk about how they're going to manage that. So, as I said, the scale of the business with the addition of ION and the synergies they get with Kate's uh, you know, allows for substantial free cash flow. So they've guided for about 250 million this year, which is which is a, a decent amount. But I think you're going to start to see next year in 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 calendar 2022 the cash flow generation ability of this company like in its full form. And so next year is going to be a political year, um, and so you're going to get that windfall. But you also have the ion synergies, which they've talked about kind of like 120 million per year kicking in over over a five or six year period. Um, and so as I start to layer in that in my model, I'm getting to $400 million plus in free cash flow. And so they've talked about being four times levered by the end of next year. Um, I think that's achievable given the cash flow profile. Obviously, anything can happen, and you know, COVID was a was a curveball. But I would I would argue that the fact that this business has been resilient as it has been, even during a very difficult COVID period, speaks to their ability to manage the debt. Um, you know, and the thing about these guys that makes me a little nervous is that you know they've been willing to continue to make deals even when they had what I would call a little bit of extra leverage. So they, they, a couple of years ago, they, they bought a bunch of stations from a company called Cordillera and they levered up to do that. And then COVID hit. Um, and then all of a sudden they're buying ion, right? And so to some degree like this, they've been more comfortable with leverage than this company has ever been. Cause this is still a family owned family controlled business. Now, Adam Simpson is not a relative of a Scripps person, but you know there are still Scripps people who who, who own the controlling shares here. So um, you know, you a lot of family-owned businesses are more conservative, and they haven't. You know, they they they're very, I think, very just very hesitant to put it on a lot of debt. But um, you know, I, I you know they've done a pretty good job of um, 
you know, managing the debt, paying it down, managing some, you know, the decline in the sub base in, in the local media uh, segment and still being able to grow that business. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not something that doesn't concern me. It, it certainly is. I think they have a path. I think they're going to generate a ton of cash next year. Um, and, and look, 2024, I don't know what you guys are thinking about political, but anything that I can see right now is suggesting that 2024 is going to be an insane year for political ad spending. Right. And so that's, that's another thing that they have on the horizon. And I think they also have a lot of opportunities for improvement. So as I mentioned, you know, more better rates and, 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 um, and CPMs that within the scripts networks business as, as that business matures a little bit, um, what else do I have here? Let's see. You know, I think the other thing that's going to happen, and, and this is both a risk and an opportunity, is that over the next couple of years, a lot of their relationships with the cable companies are going to um, going to kind of re-up. So every th- so what they do is they typically sign three-year agreements with, with Comcast, for example. And then after three years, you renegotiate your retrans. How much... Um, how much per per sub per month are you going to get? And every year over the last five or six years, that that numbers those numbers have been a lot higher. Now there's a risk that it could go down, um, but in the history suggests that, that that number could be you know could could be even higher. Um, what else? Um, I also think connected TV, which is just a little interesting thing that I haven't seen the other broadcasters doing, is that that given that. Um, Scripps has so many over-the-air stations. They've started to hit the connected TV business um, and and start generating you know ads by providing you know, by by having those stations on connected TVs as well. So um, you know I don't I don't know how big that business could be, but they just, they have a lot of little incremental things that they can improve upon. But mostly the ion synergies and 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 the political to help them negotiate to navigate the uh, the the debt burden. Okay, I have a. Question: You can feel free to shoo this one away if you want, because it's sure could be slightly political, but it's not intended to be. I'm genuinely curious. Do you think a do you think Trump running is a benefit or a positive for Scripps advertising revenue? Yeah, um, it's a massive positive because because unlike in 2016, where he didn't have any funding, he will be potentially the most well-funded presidential candidate in the history of U.S. elections if he runs again in 2024. Um, and so they will flood is to the degree that they can digital, but they will absolutely be trying to hit, you know, kind of swing voters in close, close states. And, and really, I, 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 over the next two or three years, like, I don't see anything that's going to unseat broadcast as the most effective way of reaching people. So, yeah, I mean, it would be a, um, a likely a massive windfall, um, and especially if you had close House, like like let's say the Republicans are able to flip the House or flip the Senate um, in twenty twenty two, it's not going to be by a huge margin. So any other any additional races that are up, you know, in 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 twenty twenty four, you know, you're just you're just going to see a, a, a massive political spend. And you know, like, look, I have my own comments about. And, and thoughts about is that good for democracy? Is that good for society? Is this a good use of our resources? Um, you know, maybe not. But from a from a pure financial basis, it's 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 a tailwind for for Scripps. Okay, you guys have obviously done a ton of work on Scripps. So, uh, do you guys have a price in mind? What do you think it's worth today? And then, I guess for to remind listeners, what's it at today? 
Yeah. So um, the stock trades is, is a little under $20 today. Um, and one of the weird things about scripts is that it's a kind of complicated thing, as I said, to, to, to value because you have these up and down years. So this, you know, 2020 was a huge year. 2021, uh, because political disappears, is a, is, a low, is a down year. And then 2022 and then 2024 are going to be significant up years. And so um, when, when I'm doing in a sum of the parts analysis or a multiple analysis, um, and this is, this is common in the industry, is you average two years worth of EBITDA. So I'm like, so as I'm valuing scripts going forward, I'm averaging 21 and 22 EBITDA. Um, because you can't you can't take one point and value it because you know you're gonna whatever it is you're gonna have a big shift the next year, um, and the other thing that makes scripts a little squirrely is that scripts is not a, a perfect comp for companies that are more pure play broadcast like a Tegna or a Gray which are more pure play um, because of because scripts has the scripts networks business and so you know you have a forty percent margin business that's growing. Um, I think people might place a premium on that because of the growth in OTA viewership relative to segments and companies that are tied inextricably to the cable bundle. Um, so um, getting to, you know, it's a long-winded preamble because I just, I have to, you know, I always want to caveat that like, it's not, you have to dig a little bit and, and think like to take a step back when you're valuing scripts, but everything that I look at points to a low thirties value. Um, so that, where does that come from? So if you put a nine X, uh, EBITDA multiple on average, 21, 22 EBITDA for scripts, um, it's getting low, uh, like low thirties, 30, like 30, $32, um, depending on what EBITDA is. Um, and I don't think that's a crazy multiple for a 25% EBITDA margin business that's growing. Um, and if you want a recent comp, Gray just bought Meredith's um, broadcast networks for 10 times EBITDA. And I would argue that the combination of Scripps local media business plus Kate's is way better than anything Meredith had. So I think that's a conservative um, estimate of what of what it could be worth. Alternatively, you know, I've got them earning on, you know, something like uh, 240, 250 in, in EPS. Um, in, in 2022. So, you know, if you just put a 13 multiple on that, which I think is pretty conservative, given where the market trades, you're getting low 30s. Um, and then I, our DCFs are notoriously conservative. Um, I'm not going to get into why, but like our DCFs like almost never work for any companies just because of how conservative they're built. And, you know, even if I put, even given our conservative structure of our DCF, plus our conservative estimates of the future, if I put a 9% whack, I'm still getting low low 20s. So you're getting a 9% embedded return plus upside, um, you know, based on our DCF. So, you know, everything to me says low 30s is is easily achievable over the next two to three years. Um, a lot of it, as I said, is just blocking and tackling, right? They need to, they need to execute on the ion synergies, they need to pay down some debt. Um, they need to continue to, you know, find little opportunities to grow that other people are neglecting. Um, but look, we like the management. So th we go through three pillars of our, of our, um, investment process, business value and people. Um, I think the people are great. You know, as I said, Adam has surprised us, but you know, they've, they've done a really good job of navigating a lot of different things that are, that, that have been pretty difficult. I think the value is very, very compelling under $20. I think you can see 50% upside without a lot of, without a lot of heavy lifting. Um, and then the business, we've gone a lot into the business, you know, the local media business remains a question mark. 
Um, but I think the the pivot to over the air and the pivot to ion on Kate's has just it's completely changed both the cash flow profile of the business and the growth profile of the business. So I would argue that relative to the other broadcast companies, Scripps may have the best growth trajectory of all of them. And so, you know, when I when I see it trading at a very pedestrian multiple, you know, even in relation to some of the other broadcast companies, it's, you know, I think there's an opportunity here for, for anyone who's willing to do the work. Okay, that's a great overview. And you've talked about some of the risks already, uh, but are there any other risks to this investment that an investor should be aware of? Yeah, sure. Um, let me see. Let's let me get to my uh, my my broad list of risks because I it is it is something that we focus a lot on. Um, so let's start with leverage. As I said, um, you know, four point seven times trailing. Obviously, there's a cash flow profile of the business that has gotten more attractive, but you know that requires continued execution and a, an environment that is conducive to the company growing the top line. And so, um, you know, obviously, anything that happens to political next year would be a, a headwind. If for some reason political ads went all, went back to Facebook and and YouTube, or you know, Twitter took over the, the you know that that role, that would be a, that would be a headwind. So I, I think. The leverage is always concerning and I never want to like, I'm a conservative guy in general. And I, and I always want to like, I want to be very upfront that I'm, I'm recommending people spend some time looking at, looking at a business that is 4.7 times levered. And that is on the outside of what, what we think of what we traditionally feel, feel comfortable with, right? Obviously it matters what kind of business it is, but there's still, there's still a business that bounces around here, whether that's the core ad business could be up or down, or you know, like you're still tied to the economy in a lot of ways, whether that's people cutting the cord or or ad spending going down because of a recession, right? Like those would be headwinds and it would delay the ability for them to delever. Um, I, as I mentioned, I think the 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 pricing they're getting on a per sub per month in retrans is just not sustainable. And if you read any broadcast call, um, guess what they tell you? Of course, it's sustainable because the past has been so great. Well, but I, I worry that um, you know there could be a step down at some point in terms of per sub per month, um, and you know that gravy train that Retrans has been that has made these businesses more profitable and more stable because of it's more like subscription revenue than ad revenue. You know that could be that could go the other way. Um, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of the free cash flow growth comes from the synergy capture. Um, and so you kind of have to believe that management's credible and that those synergies are, are are legitimate. As I mentioned, I think a lot of them are just mechanistic as opposed to like taking, you know, requiring a lot of heavy lifting. But it's something that, you know, you kind of have to trust in management to, 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 to be willing to underwrite it. Um, uh, local news. It, I, I, I don't know if you guys watch the local news. My guess is you don't. Um, I don't know many people who are in their 20s, 30s, or even 40s who who watch local news. Um, and so I think that, you know, if you are tied to a demo, you know, the, the, the baby boomer demographic, like eventually that starts to be, um, you know, an area that is not a growth, you know, not a growth in viewership and not a growth in, 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 in you know, kind of ad revenue business. And so I think, the future of local news is a is a big question mark mark in my mind. How will you know my son who's two? You know, well, how will he consume news in ten years? I don't, I don't, or even fifteen years when you know when he first starts to to to, to like to try to learn about the world. I don't know, um, but I do think that um, unless it can become more relevant to young people, um, it's going to be hard for them to maintain their 
um, you know, kind of viewership share uh, at that at, at those during those day parts. Um, and the last thing I'll mention: this is a, a controlled company. The Scripps family controls the voting shares. Um, so you know, this is not a situation where if something went wrong, you could buy ten percent of the company and activist them because you know they 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 control the voting shares. And so, if you think that the only way to unlock value is for them to be a seller, um, I think that's highly unlikely. I think the tax situation would be very difficult. But I think you could have also said that any number of times about this company that you know they they you know look their, their history was in newspapers and they got out of the newspaper business, right? And they've divested things and they've spun things. So you know maybe at some point the way to unlock value is to separate the local media business from the networks business and do exactly what they did with Home and Garden and 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 um, and Food Network um, and spin it off. So. Um, you know, I think this company has shown the ability to pivot and 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 willing to do interesting things from a capital allocation perspective, but there's no way to force it. So, um, you know, if, if this stock just languished at $19 for the next three years, you know, an investor wouldn't be able to do a whole lot about it. Um, so, I, th- I think I think those are the primary risks I see. Okay, I think that's all the questions we have. So, uh, for any listeners that are interested in you, where can they find you? Any resources or uh, Twitter handles? Yeah, sure. So um, we're, you know, CoveStreetCapital.com. Um, we have a thoughts tab where we're pretty liberal with what we, sh- you know, the companies we talk about and how we view the world. Um, I do a lot of interviews myself and my colleagues do as well. Um, so you can go to CoveStreetCapital.com and go to our thoughts tab. You'll find a lot of content from us. You can follow me on Twitter at Ben Claremont. Um, I don't, you know, as, as I think as, as we were talking offline, I spend most of my time reading, you know, 10 K's and, and doing models and stuff like that. But I, I do tweet every once in a while, especially when, when we're releasing episodes of compounders. Um, and so that, that's the other thing you could do is subscribe to compounders, the anatomy of a multi-bagger, um, season, season one just finished. We did 12 episodes with public company CEOs. Um, as I said, we had Adam Simpson on, um, but we also had uh, two Fortune 500 CEOs on. Um, and then season two is going to drop uh, in early December. And we already have one Fortune 500 CEO booked, which I'm excited about. And so, um, you know, if, if, if you're interested in Cove Street and our process and how we think about evaluating businesses and management and culture, um, I think the podcast is a good... Um, you know, a good way to, a good way to, to, to get us like, to understand our firm. And, um, you know, so if you're interested in talking to me about scripts or any of the other companies that we've been public about or anything you see in our 13F, just, just DM me on Twitter or, you know, find me on coastreetcapital.com. Perfect. All right. Thank you, Ben, for your time. We enjoyed it. Um, yeah. Thanks. The, the uh, disclosure. Oh yeah. Right. Before we, before we sign off, uh, we, Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital. So clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for your time. We'll see you next time. 